I'm going to get us right in. Let's open up your uh, our Bibles here to Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and um, we will get one to you. If you don't own a Bible, or you know someone who, who would benefit from that Bible, you are um, encouraged to keep it. We... Um, See our call as a church to distribute the word of God in any way that we can. But we have uh, been slowly moving through Luke's gospel, and we are now in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Although, if you were here last week, you'll know that we're kind of launching from this text into um, some general reflections, kind of on the devotional life. But I'll I'll show you that here in a moment. Let's read these verses. Let me pray, uh, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Let's pray. God, we want to be about so many things as a church. I mean, no doubt we want to be out on the streets reaching the lost. No doubt we want to be witnesses, salt and light in our workplace. We want to be the best citizens of earth, even as we know that we are ultimately citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We want to be a strong, tight-knit community. Bearing one another's burdens, rejoicing with those who are rejoicing and weeping with those who weep. We, we want to be interceding for one another and loving one another well and wisely. But God, I think what you're saying in this text that we need to be about perhaps more than anything else is about time alone with you. We need to be about the closet, as the Puritans would call it. Getting alone with our Father. Sitting at your feet, listening to your word. Allowing you to pour your heart out into ours as we, in turn, pour our heart into yours. We need to be a people that know how to be alone with you and prioritize that as the one necessary thing, the one thing that can't be taken, the one thing from which all else, all our activity, all our community, all our work, all our evangelism flows. So God, I pray that you would help us 
I pray that you would use uh, our time together this morning to move us just a step closer to that sort of thing. Would you do that for your glory and, and for the good of your people? We're more hungry, more, de- more desperate, more, more needy than we know. Meet us here this morning by your grace. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so it's going to be a little tricky um, for those of you that maybe are, are kind of dropping in first time or you weren't here last week. I know we got people in and out on vacation. This is a part kind of two, but you might even say part three. We are um, moving down what I called last week the sacred path. And the idea here is this, um, I'm trying to help us as a church pursue what we see Jesus say we all ought to be pursuing in this text with Mary. Um, when you when you look at this exchange with Martha and Mary and Jesus, one thing that comes to the surface is that Mary has chosen the one necessary thing. Sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to his teaching. And um, last week, we kind of made the connection for our time now. Because when it comes to pursuing this one necessary thing uh, with Mary, we might find ourselves at first a little bit confused. Because Jesus isn't here in the flesh. I can't sit at his feet, and listen to him the same way that Mary did. How do we pursue that one necessary thing now, today, 21st century? And what we said, uh, I think quite naturally, and I think most of us intuitively would get this, is that it, it probably correlates with this idea of reading the Bible, of hearing God's word, and sitting alone with God, and, and letting him speak to us. But one of the tragic realities, as I brought out statistics last time, uh, is that even though Jesus would say, this is the one thing we need to be about before we're about anything else, when it comes to evangelical Christianity, when it comes to church-going people, they're just simply not doing it. And there are a number of reasons, perhaps, why we're not opening our Bibles, why we don't, you know, get alone with God in this space and let him speak from the scriptures. But um, I said last time, at best, my thinking is that it might be because getting into God's word is confusing. It's difficult. It's complex. You don't always know what it's even supposed to look like. You sit in church on a Sunday and feel like, yes, this is what I want to do. I want to be, you know, in God's word. I want to be, you know, all out for Jesus. And then I try to open my Bible in the morning or whatever works for me. And I kind of start reading and I kind of just get lost in it. It just feels awkward or confusing. And so my hope in, um, these messages is to kind of point us forward a little bit, try to make some sense what that time could look like. And that's where this idea of the sacred path really came from. And I said last time, it really is a result of my own struggle with the devotional life. Because I would find I would just meander and wander and, you know, maybe I did some good biblical theology and connections and references, but did I really meet with Jesus? 
Or maybe I got some ministry work done, like preparation for a sermon, or uh, I shot a text with a verse to somebody who I know who needed it, or all these things. But did I really meet with Jesus? I needed something to help keep me moving forward towards that place with Mary at Jesus' feet. And uh, so that's really kind of the heart behind this. And I will say again, this is certainly not the only way to go about the devotional life, but it is just one way. And I thought, coming off of this discussion that Jesus is having with Martha, man, uh, even though I risk perhaps treading in some interesting water by trying to lead us into the devotional life, and even though it might seem like I'm coming off arrogant, like, let me tell you how it's done, church, uh, I was willing to risk that because of how essential he says that this is for us. Like, we just need to start engaging this one way or the other, and here's my attempt in years to come, we might, you know, I might shift, and a month later I might shift and do different things. But here at least is some things that I could put forward for you and say, man, maybe this will help. Maybe this will help us do the one necessary thing. Now, last week we looked at, and you'll see it kind of there on your handout. You're probably confused by what that is. But it's essentially the worksheet that I use now in the mornings to kind of keep me on track. And I give it to you. I'll make it available online. I might even put it into a bookmark for you if you just wanted to have some of the basic questions and things and steps. But we looked at the first three steps last week. Um, and uh, I'll just briefly recount them for you here. The first one was this idea of solitude. So we saw how Jesus gets alone with his father. Jesus kind of built into the son of God. God, built into his almost daily rhythm, this, uh, this, this getting away, getting alone, going to the desolate place to be with his father. We talked about how, man, maybe we should be doing that as well, this place of solitude with God, getting alone, and talked about how, man, what happens in that place is not only are we uh, allowed to have kind of a spot with minimal distraction, but we also have a, have a spot where we can kind of have minimal reservation. What I mean is, is you can cry. When you're alone with God like that, you can, you can yell, you can sing, you can, you can rejoice. But you can truly engage. You set yourself up to really be sitting at his feet and engaging him. Right? Second step along this path would be this idea of silence. We get alone with God and then we get quiet before him. And we saw how silence in many ways is a return to sanity. It's a way of remembering our place in the universe, which we so often get off track with that. Like you notice there, Mary is not first engaging in dialogue, it would seem. It says that she is listening. She's got the posture of sanity. You are God, I am not. Speak. I'm here. You order my life. You make sense of the chaos. You put things back together with your word. You tell me what's going on. And I mentioned how this silence before God, as we kind of attempt to get to that quiet spot, what we actually often realize is there's a lot of noise going on. There's a lot of noise going on. But as we move towards, as we give some of that to God and make our way towards silence, what we're doing essentially is, is, is starting to open ourselves up to God as he really is, but then also becoming more aware of ourselves as we really are. 
What's going on in my heart? What's the stuff that is burdening me? Why do I keep thinking about that, Lord? I keep giving it to you, and my thoughts are orbiting around that. What we're doing is positioning ourselves before him and starting to become aware of the things we, re- we really need him to speak into this morning. During this time, as, you're, as your heart is kind of moving towards this or that, you're, what you're really doing is starting to identify, God, I'm worried. I'm scared about this. God, I, I, I'm angry at this person. God, I, I keep thinking about these things because for some reason they've kind of become a bigger deal to me than even you. Can you help? So oftentimes I'll write some of those things down and return to them later as this idea of, and here's the stuff I'm facing today. God, how does your word speak into this? Then you move from solitude to silence to uh, scripture. And I didn't say much about scripture last time, only just the basic idea that the goal of solitude, the goal of silence is to move us towards a place where we are ready to hear God's voice. This isn't just kind of some, um, I don't know, con- contemplative meditation, quiet everything down and just kind of be at peace with the world. This is God, I need you to speak. And I'm about to open up the scriptures, and I, I, I need you to speak here. And I, I brought us to Elijah in 1 Kings 19, 11 through 13. And you saw how Elijah was brought alone. You know, he got alone with God, and then it was in the quiet that he heard God's voice. Now, If I could just say a few more things on this idea of scripture before we um, proceed. Uh, One thing is, um, just from a purely practical standpoint, and again, these sermons, this is largely practical, so I hesitated because I'm like, ah, and I don't want it to feel like a lecture, but at the same time, I'm like, this is so important that we start to talk about how we legitimately get in God's word and sit at Jesus' feet. If this is the one necessary thing, I'm willing to do this. A lot of times I come on Sundays with, hopefully, a, a, a fish kind of filleted nicely for you guys to enjoy. Well, today you might say, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to teach us how to fish a little bit. Think a little bit more about, not just, Pastor, bring me a good message, bring me uh, something from the Bible, but also, I need something from the Bible, not just Sundays, but every day of the week. I need to learn how to go fishing myself. So, one of the things you might think about, uh, when it comes to scripture, is the idea of a, of a reading plan. Um, how, how, can I ask just how many of you have used a Bible reading plan before? Okay. Generally speaking, I think you've, you'll find it to be helpful. Um, yes, I know that God can speak through kind of the old-fashioned, spirit-led way of uh, you just kind of flip it open like this and you, you drop your finger. What's, my, what's the word for today? If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath delight, and the whole... You see, anyways. <laughs> you open it up, and you point, and uh, yes, God speaks. But um, I am telling you that you'll be surprised how even as you make your way through uh, even a systematic plan that kind of keeps you reading the scriptures, not necessarily in a year, uh, but just keeps you going, I think you'll be surprised how even in the midst of that system, God will speak in spontaneous and surprising ways. He will speak in just the way you need it at just the right time, even though you're just following a little plan or whatever it is. I have found that if I don't have something like that, I just kind of meander or I keep going to those same verses and I miss the full counsel of God that my soul needs. So if you 
need suggestions or help in terms of a, a, a Bible reading plan, I'm happy to help. Um, but one last thing before I, I transition. I, I, I wanted to um, read you something that I came across in a book by Donald Whitney by uh, the title, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. If you're prone to question the value, if you're prone to question the value of the scriptures, and I think all of us are at times, like, ah, is this really worth my time? Is this really worth the effort? I don't seem to be getting all that much out of this. Maybe I'll, you know, read that little devotional instead, or maybe I'll, you know, listen to that sermon, or maybe I don't even really need this sort of thing. Sunday's enough. If you ever question the value of getting in God's Word and in the Scriptures, hear this. Hear this. This is Donald Whitney commenting on 2 Timothy 4.13. He writes this. The Apostle Paul was in prison and writing the last chapter of his final New Testament letter. Note that. This is the last chapter of his last letter. This is the end of this man's ministry, largely. Okay? Writing the last chapter of his final New Testament letter, anticipating the arrival of his younger friend Timothy, he wrote, now this is 2 Timothy 4.13, when you come, Timothy, Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Whitney goes on. The scrolls and parchments, Paul requested, almost certainly included copies of the scriptures. In his cold and miserable confinement, the godly apostle asked for two things. A cloak to wear, so his body could be warmed, and God's word to study, so his mind and heart could be warmed. Paul had seen heaven, 2 Corinthians 12, 1-6, and the resurrected Christ, Acts 9-5. He'd experienced the Holy Spirit's power for miracles, Acts 14-10, and even for writing Holy Scripture, 2 Peter 3-16. Nevertheless, he continued to study God's word until he died. I just thought that was amazing. What an insight and, and, and what, a, um, what a, a, a beacon shining out, showing us the value of Scripture. Why, why would this apostle who has seen all these things, even written Scripture himself, at the end of his ministry, when you would think he had fully arrived, last chapter, last book, bring the Scriptures to me. Get the word of God into my hands. I want to read it again. Why? Why would he find it so valuable, so essential, so necessary? Well, to put it simply, I think it's because it is through the word that we come to see the word. Namely, Jesus, right? John chapter 1. It is through the word of God that we come to see the word, God himself, Jesus. This leads now to the fourth step along this sacred path. And this is the one we'll really spend pretty much all of our time on today. It's what I would call sanctum. Don't be confused by that word. I'm just trying to keep with the S's. I'm sorry. I figured it would help with uh, our memorization as we kind of move through. But the idea is, uh, you might think of its, its corollary, um, sanctuary. 
So the word sanctum is actually in the Latin used to uh, refer to like the most holy place in the temple there in Israel. The place where God's glory was said to dwell. Sanctum sanctorum is what it's referred to. But it's this idea of a sacred space, this idea of a sacred meeting place between you and your maker and redeemer. So the basic sense then is this, as we move from scripture to sanctum, in our reading of the Bible, we trust by God's grace, there will come times. There will come times when we become suddenly, even surprisingly aware that we are no longer merely reading words on a page, but are in fact sitting in the very presence of God. That God, by his spirit, is speaking to us through the ink and paper. That Jesus is in the room. The word has led us to the word. Or, to put it another way, we now encounter the risen Christ through God's inspired word. I mean, have you had times like that in the scriptures? Where you're just kind of reading through, seem like same business as usual, and then all of a sudden, it's like God just shows up in a powerful way, and you realize he is speaking into your heart. He is speaking to you. And it floors you, it amazes you, that this ancient book could be so relevant to this modern moment in your life. But it is. Now, I get this idea, uh, in particular, from 2 Corinthians 3-4, through where Paul is drawing, actually, on this Old Testament imagery with Moses, where Moses would meet with Yahweh, meet with God in the tabernacle there. He would go in and literally kind of speak with him, we're told. Um, and then he would bring, uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 through 4, brings the discussion into this kind of modern day context. And here's what he says, where Moses would kind of go into the tabernacle and, and speak with God in that way. He says, now what's going to happen, and this is Second uh, Corinthians 4, verses 2 through 4. We're going to meet with God through his word. In particular, as the gospel is brought to us. What's going to happen is, is through his word, through the gospel, we will see in the, in the, in the face of Christ the glory of God. So in other words, what Moses entered the tabernacle, the kind of holy place, the sanctum, if you will, to engage with God back in that day. Now, the word is our portal, if you will. The, the word of God, the gospel preached or read, written, whatever, is the way that we start to see the glory of God. And now, it's illuminating the face of Jesus. We see him. Through the word, we see the word. Now, it's at this point um, that I really want to drill deep and consider what, in fact, it actually looks like to read the Bible and encounter Jesus there. You say, all well and good, Nick, when I'm in the Gospels, I see Jesus there. You know, and maybe in some of the New Testament epistles, I see Jesus there. Some of the classic Old Testament prophecies, maybe I see Jesus there. But there's a lot of places in the Scriptures, old and new, where if we're not careful, we're not sitting at Jesus' feet. We don't see the glory of God in his face. We maybe see some good principles or good ideas or some weird, strange things that the old people in, the, you know, in Israel used to do. 
And you get confused and you get lost. So I want to dig deep on this in terms of what does it actually look like to study the scriptures, to come into the Bible, reading it, and meet with Jesus there in a powerful way. Um, For this, I want to introduce you to what I would call the DNA method of Bible study. Um, It's an acronym that stands for, and you'll see it on on your handout, Discover, Nurture, and Apply. Discover, nurture, and apply. I told you this was going to be practical. I told you I'm trying to teach us how to fish. These are the basic things that I do every time I prepare a sermon, pretty much. Or a Bible study. Or doing my devotions. Now, there are two things that I've found to be particularly helpful about this method. And uh, I wanted to make sure I shared those with you up front here. First, it keeps the end goal in view. Let me tell you what I mean. This method actually keeps the end goal of our times with Jesus, our times in his word, our times with Mary sitting at his feet in view. The image that this acronym uh, puts forward, this idea of DNA, does it not bring with it the idea of genetics, the idea of uh, um, kind of, you know, your gene pool and who you are? Well, what's wonderful about this is that it actually keeps before us what's supposed to be happening as we meet with, with Jesus in the scriptures, namely transformation at an almost like a genetic level, if you will. There's all this talk in the New Testament, about what Jesus has come to do. And one of the most significant things we're told that kind of governs his ministry is he's redeeming us. What's his goal in it? Well, what we read all over the place is his goal is to take the image of God that we marred when we fell in Adam. Remember, Adam, they were created in his image. They fell into sin. That image was marred. Jesus comes to restore or renew us in that Image, In other words, comes to make us look more like his father, our father in heaven. You might think of it like this. This is why the scriptures are going to use words like being reborn or born again. What is that but saying, listen, you now have a different family. You now have different genetics. You now are drawing from a different gene pool. The spirit comes in. Christ is at work, you're going to start looking more and more like not your earthly father, not Adam, but Christ. And so our times with Jesus in his word are intended to transform us. And this DNA acronym kind of keeps that in front of us. Like, what is this all about? Just a nice little Bible study where I come up with some cool truths so that when I'm on the streets, I know how to zing the atheist or I know how to, you know, win the argument. Or is it about just kind of this nice little time for me to vent my feelings to God and then I go off into my day unchanged? No, the idea is, yes, we maybe learn some things. Yes, we maybe talk and engage God with our heart, no doubt. But then what we start to find in result is we're transformed by this exchange. Things are changing in us, and we're looking more like the one we spent time with. For for, for Moses, when he went into the tabernacle, right, uh, it, it, it actually caused his face to glow. If you know the Old Testament, you remember this story. He would spend time with the glory of God in God's presence, and when he'd come out, his face would be shining. That's the idea of sanctum. That's the idea of time in his scriptures. Is Look, we might not walk out and... and uh, I mean, I might have a little bit of better glow after a good devotion or something, but uh, we're not talking about complexion anymore. What we are talking about, though, is, man, all of a sudden I'm going to come out and I'm going to shine in a different way. 
I'm going to start looking like Jesus in the one I spent time with, in the way that I think, in the way that I feel, in the way that I talk, in the way that I act. Something has changed because of this encounter with him in that quiet, solitude place. Now, this is why Paul, back in that same discussion, just referenced um, there in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, but here in 2 Corinthians 3.18, this is why he, he says this, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, which how do we behold? Through the word and the gospel, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, he says, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This is what the devotional life, the quiet time, the place with Mary at Jesus' feet is all about. One degree of of glory to another, transformation. Image renewal. Did you catch that? Being transformed into the same image. If I could just say one more thing on this point. Guys, we, we often think, and we come to the scriptures thinking, Ah, I need to find some good things for my life here. And absolutely. I need to find some good principles, some good commands. Absolutely. Yes, you do. But what you need to see more than anything else, and I want to just drive this conviction into us, is, is not a few principles, not a few commands, but Jesus. Jesus. That is what Paul is saying here will transform you. is is not gazing into the mirror and maybe working on your makeup beautifying yourself, but actually seeing how beautiful he is. That's what starts to actually change you. Now, um, that's the first kind of thing that I I find helpful about this acronym. Second um, thing that I would bring out is that each uh, step really moves us towards this end goal. So not only do we see the end goal by this idea of DNA might be uh, genetic renewal, image renewal, this idea of looking like Jesus, the one who now we have his genes and we're, we're being transformed. But also what we find is that as you make your way through that acronym, it, it kind of gives you a step towards that goal, uh, one step at a time. And this is really where I'll um, dive in and kind of launch from here. Uh, we uh, would move from discover to nurture to apply as we get into God's word. Or it might help you to see us, uh, if you will, on a journey from head to heart to hand. That's really what we're after. We might learn some things, engage with God through repentance and faith and seeing Jesus and trusting him and then walking it out, applying it in our day to day. Um, So let's take those then one at a time. Um, Discover. Discover. So practically speaking, as you sit down, perhaps in the morning, you get alone with God, you quiet your soul, you you open the good book, and you're looking for Jesus, and you're asking him to speak, and you're wanting to hear, and as you read a chapter here or a chapter there, you might identify a key word or a phrase or a verse or a section that speaks to you. And you might even write it down in your journal or on the worksheet. And you start thinking about this before God. And uh, long and short of it, the basic idea, as at least I approach the scriptures, is I, I want to give the Holy Spirit a highlighter. 
and just say, okay, listen, you know me better than I know myself. Where should I focus today? I can't do a classic Nick Weber and go verse by verse for the next, you know, three years on this chapter. I, I need you, God, to show me what's for me right here today. And maybe he'll just highlight one thing and your heart's drawn to this verse, this keyword, whatever it is, and you write it down and you start to chew on it. You start to think about it. When you've landed on a place to focus, you might consider some of the following questions. And this actually is just written right there on your handout. What do you see in this text? What questions do you have? What answers can you find? What is God revealing to you here? Is there an attribute to adore, a truth to trust, a promise to hope in, a command to obey, a warning to heed, an example to follow? How does what he is revealing here connect to what he has revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus? Every verse in scripture becomes good news when run through the cross of Christ. Preach the good news to yourself once more. So the first set of questions there just gives us a basic way we might approach a text and start to break it down and try to understand it a little bit more. And I would highly recommend like ESV study Bible or something like that. So you don't get lost doing web searches, trying to figure out what in the world is happening. It's just helpful right there. Don't got to go into the World Wide web and get stuck in that vortex. Stay with God, right? Um, but you're just asking questions and you're, you're drawing things out and you're starting to say, oh yeah, I see what's going on here. There's... One thing, though, as, as you move towards the last little set of those questions that I wanted to focus on here, and that is this, how or what does it mean to connect or to draw whatever he is revealing here to the person and work of Jesus? What does it look like to find the good news of Jesus Christ in every text? And is that even valid? And why am I calling us to do that? And what does this mean? So let me start to make sense of that uh, for you for a moment. There are a couple of presuppositions that stand behind this idea for us of connecting all of Scripture to Jesus' work on the cross, the gospel. First, all of Scripture is held together and made sense of by the good news of Jesus Christ. All. Old, new, and everywhere in between. All of scripture, the whole Bible is held together by the good news of Jesus Christ. You might think of the gospel as uh, like the binding on your Bible. Trying to read your Bible without uh, the gospel is like trying to read your Bible without bu the, its binding. Ripping the binding out. The binding is what holds the book together. It's what holds the story together. You rip that off and the pages go flying. And you can't make sense of it anymore. I could take you, and I wanted to, and I, you know me, I have too much. But um, I could have taken you to countless texts on this, but I'll give you just one. And it's one we've looked at before, but it's beautiful. You remember at the end of um, Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus has already been crucified. He's risen again from the dead. He meets his disciples, the apostles, shows up to them before he's about to ascend to the Father. And he just does a radical, amazing Bible study with them. And remember, that all they had at this point was Old Testament texts. And this is what he does with them. He says, he says this, Luke 24, 44 to 47. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. 
that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's, by the way, the way that the Jews would divide their their Old Testaments. Three ways. The law, the prophets, the Psalms, the writings, that idea. And he's basically saying, it's all pointing to me. But he goes on and he says this. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So essentially what Jesus is doing here as he opens the scriptures to them and opens their minds, their eyes to the scriptures, he's basically saying, guys, why all the confusion? Why all the trouble? Why all the anxiety? Why, why do you feel so you know, blown away by what's going on? This shouldn't have surprised you. Why? That's what the Old Testament was all about. My death. My resurrection. And the forgiveness of sins. The blessing of Abraham that's going to move through to all the families of the earth. That's what this is all about. How'd you miss that? That's basically what Jesus is saying. Okay, I'll help you. And he opens their minds to it. So, again, first presupposition is that all of Scripture is held together and made sense of by the good news of Jesus. So if we're not seeing the good news in whatever text we're reading that morning, we're missing the very thing that will make sense of it. Second uh, presupposition that stands behind this is this. What you need more than anything every day is the good news of Jesus Christ. What you and I need more than anything every day is gospel. Every day you need gospel. I am, again, I had a a list of texts I wanted to take you to here. I'm just going to take you to one, my favorite. It's It's my favorite because it essentially launched a personal revival for me. As I was a new believer, uh, I started like I think most believers do, unfortunately. You kind of think the gospel is for, it's kind of how you begin, and then you start to, you, you know, you start to think at least that now I need to perfect myself by my own efforts. Now I need to try to grow in godliness through, through grit and grime and sweat. And my own strength. And I was falling victim to legalism and all the stuff that comes along with it, the arrogance and the criticism and the pride and the yuck. And the despair. Like, this is actually miserable. It was fun being a Christian at first, and now this stinks. And then, God, through the word, brought me to face the word. And the gospel, and my desperate need for it. Not just at the beginning, but every day thereafter. Galatians 3, 1 through 5, the same thing is happening to this church. And Paul writes to them, Oh foolish Galatians. I don't think I'd ever call you that, but he, he's an apostle, so he's allowed to do that. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing? with faith. 
Here's what I saw. The implication is so plain for us. These Galatians were saying, okay, we begin by hearing with faith, then we perfect ourselves by the works of the law and the strength of the flesh. And Paul says, how foolish. The spirit that was supplied to you at the very beginning by hearing the gospel, the message of Jesus crucified and risen for you, by hearing the gospel and believing it, that is the very same way that today, in the midst of all your troubles, in the midst of all your needs, the Spirit will be supplied to you once more in power by hearing the gospel, receiving it by faith. So it is what we need, you and I, more than anything else, every day. Grace. To gaze upon Jesus, to see his victory on your behalf. To know that your sins are there. To know that his righteousness counts for you. Or as we looked at our home, in our home group on Friday, that he lives now to make intercession for you. Like that's what you need to see. That's what will start to actually, as we saw, change and transform you. Consider the words of uh, Tim Keller here. I love, I've been loving Tim Keller. So I just, I, I bring out, tech. you know, the key, if you're, if you're a, a pastor, preacher, speaker, the key is you don't quote something unless you can't say it any better than, than this guy did. And, and I can't. So let me read this to you. In our Christian life, we never get beyond the gospel to something more advanced. The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths. It is more like the hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we all make progress in the kingdom. We are not justified by the gospel and then sanctified by obedience. Rather, the gospel is the way we grow, Galatians 3, 1 through 3, and are renewed, Colossians 1, 6. It is the solution to each problem, the key to each closed door, the power to take us through every barrier. It is very common in the church to think as follows. The gospel is for non-Christians. One needs it to be saved. But once saved, you grow through hard work and obedience. But Colossians 1.6 shows that this is a mistake. Both confession and hard work that is not arising from and in line with the gospel will not sanctify you. They will strangle you. All our problems come from a failure to apply the gospel. Thus, when Paul left the Ephesians, he committed them to the word of his grace, which can build you up, Acts 20, 32. The main problem in the Christian life, then, is that we have not thought out the deep implications of the gospel. We have not used the gospel in and on all parts of our life. Richard Loveless says that most people's problems are just a failure to be oriented to the gospel, a failure to grasp and believe it through and through. Luther says the truth of the gospel is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it to others, and then you have to love Luther's language, and beat it into their heads continually. So what are you doing in your devotions? You are beating the gospel into your head continually because it's what you need most. The gospel is not easily comprehended. Paul says that the gospel does its renewing work in us only as we understand it in all its truth. All of us, to some degree, live around the truth of the gospel but do not get it. So the key to continual and deeper spiritual renewal and revival is continual rediscovery of the gospel. 
the discovery of a new implication or application of the gospel, seeing more of its truth, is an important stage of any renewal. This is true for either an individual or a church. Now, I recognize I have to move fast here, but it's one thing to know and agree with all that I've just said, that the gospel holds the scriptures together, makes sense of it all, that the gospel is what we need more than anything every day, but yet we must face the reality that when we throw our Bibles open to Leviticus or open to wherever, we go, I don't see any good news here. I have no idea what I'm doing. And obviously I can't fix that with one sermon, but I did want to try to help. And that's what's actually on the back of your handout. Keller puts forward here that the gospel is like a hub in a wheel of truth. And um, I had actually written something earlier to our, in, a, in training I was putting together for our home group leaders. And this is what I wrote to them. The gospel is not merely the starting line of a much longer race. It's more like the hub of a wheel. Without the gospel always at the center, nothing in the Christian life turns. It's actually why I made the diagram there a little bit annoying. You have to turn it to read it. (laughs) Capturing that reality. If you don't have the gospel at the center, nothing in the Christian life turns. It just falls flat. Everything stalls out. You go nowhere. So, Drawing on that imagery, I wanted to give you guys what I'd call the hub diagram. It's just to get you started in thinking of all the myriad ways that you can see Jesus as the center of every single text in the Bible and draw connections wherever you are and every moment. Turn to that in the morning and go, wow. And I realize I can't explain this to you, but go through some of those scripture texts. Ask, ask me about it afterwards. Let's, let's chat. Let's grow in this because it's what you need more than anything. And it's what makes sense of the Bible more than anything. But let me at least just read to you what I put there. Jesus is the realization of every promise. He's the fulfillment of every prophecy. He's the essence of every symbol. He's the substance of every shadow. The apex of every attribute. The epitome of every theme. The unveiling of every mystery. The climax of every story, the obedience of every command, the solution of every problem, the satisfaction of every longing, the point of everything. So if we are reading in the morning and we're not sitting before Jesus, seeing him, hearing him, preaching the good news to ourselves again from wherever we are, and God meets us in this place, then we're missing it. We're missing it. I hope that my preaching week to week gives you examples of some of these things, but I wanted to give you one example here, and this will kind of just run through the DNA idea, and uh, we'll be done shortly after, so don't, don't worry too much. Let me just give you an example. Let's imagine that you are reading this morning in Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm in the Bible. Um, you probably wouldn't even read it all in one sitting. But you're starting through that psalm and you come to Psalm 119, verse 11. The Holy Spirit with his highlighter in his hand, that's what jumps out. You sit on it. You start to chew on it. 
Here's what it says. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Hear the psalmist singing that to God. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So you write it down. You ponder it. You think it over. Now, if you're looking at some of those questions that I had there under Discover, you might go, oh, okay, I see an example here to follow. This psalmist seems like he has it going on. It seems like this is probably a very good thing. Storing the word of God in my heart so that I do not sin against him. Now, maybe on most mornings, you would kind of see that, be inspired by it. Oh, I get what he's saying. Let's start to do it. All right, great. Go off inspired and ready to go and encouraged. But let's imagine that this morning, that's not how you feel. Let's imagine that this morning you feel down, you feel desperate, you feel discouraged, you feel like you have been stumbling, you feel far from God. This psalmist's experience does not seem like anything you've experienced lately or anything that you have hopes of experiencing anytime soon. These words don't sound inspiring. Matter of fact, the devil's using it this morning to condemn discourage you try to quote some of your memory verses from awanus when you were going there as a kid i don't have anything in my heart i can't remember a single word so distracted so down i don't want to do this what's there in this text for you don't you see in verse 11 you might initially find a good example Or good advice. But you don't yet see good news. Right? You don't yet see how this text connects to Jesus, his person, his work, what he's done on your behalf. Let me show you what this might look like. You press in. God, I want to see where is Jesus here? You start thinking about this in light of the gospel. You press in and here's the sort of thing that starts to come out. Jesus is the singer, brothers and sisters, of every song. He is, you might say, the epitome of this theme that starts to emerge here. He is the obedience of this sort of command that you're starting to catch wind of. He is the substance of this shadow, as this psalmist is storing God's word in his heart so that he would not sin against God. Well, you go, wow, that's awesome, but the the, the quintessential example of this is not the psalmist, but my Savior. He is the one who stored up God's word in his heart so that he would not sin against him perfectly, fully, completely. Do you realize this? Every time that the Lord was faced while he walked as a man here, that he was faced with trial. What what did he fight it with? Scripture. You remember Jesus in the wilderness and Satan is coming at him with these temptations. What does he do at every point but quote from Scripture, that word of God that had been stored in his heart and kept him from sinning, not just in the wilderness. That was the outset of his ministry. How about the end? When the devil comes at him with full force around the cross 
What do we see there? But that out of Jesus' heart and mouth comes the very words of God. Again, there's this awesome quote by uh, Spurgeon where he says, listen, we should be so full of the Bible, full of the word of God, that if someone were to come and prick us, we would bleed Bible. It would just kind of come out. That's what would come out. Well, that is quite literally what we see our Savior doing around the cross. As they punch him, as they whip him, as they mock him, it's scripture coming out. In fact, that word of, of utter despair that most of us are familiar with. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sounds like, ah, he's moving towards sin in that point. He's moving towards despair, thinking that God's abandoned him. He's turning on you. No, he's not. He's quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. The word of God is coming out of his heart, keeping him from sitting to the very... Now, all of a sudden, a good example, good advice, store up God's word in your heart and keep you from sinning becomes good news. As the gospel breaks in, you go, man, my Savior did this. And then he died for my failures to do this. Okay, and then he gives me his spirit, and I spend time with him now, so that I can start to do this sort of thing too. You catch how this changes the whole thing. It's no longer this moralism, legalism, store up the word, I'm going to go do it now, apply it. No, there's steps in between. Where's Jesus? Where's the gospel? Help me. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 119.11. He's here. And he wants to help. That's discover. Nurture. Nurture. Now we move from discover to nurture. We continue on our journey from head to heart. Here's perhaps where we really start to get real with ourselves before God. Now it's no longer just, oh, I understand this text. Now it's, do I really believe this? Like what's going on in here, in my heart? Am I actually doing what the psalmist is doing or am I off somewhere else? How can Jesus help? We might consider questions like these. And again, these are on your handout. Do you believe the things God is revealing to you in this text? If there's an attribute, are you adoring? If there's a truth, are you trusting? If there's a promise, are you hoping? If there's a command, are you obeying? If there's a warning, are you heeding? If there's an example, are you following? Why or why not? What's in the way? How are these things being tested in what you are currently facing? How can Jesus come to your rescue? Make the good confession once more. So, If what we said in verse 11 of Psalm 119 we have before us is essentially a good example, an example to follow, we have to ask ourselves now, am I following? And let's say we realize that we haven't been, and now we have to get underneath that, go, why not? Why is the word of God not in my heart? What exactly is going on? And as you start to press and as you start to consider and pray and, and, and ask God for help to illuminate these sorts of things in your heart, perhaps uh, what you see is, is stuff coming out. You, you realize that you've been storing up different words in your heart lately, words that don't keep you from sinning against God, but words that are actually starting to lead you towards sin. Maybe it was earlier in the week, but it's still on your mind. And in the time of silence, these were the sorts of things that were still brewing. Maybe earlier in the week. Coworker 
threw you under the bus. Maybe project went bad at work and boss calls you in and, and you're sitting there with your teammate and he just straight up accuses you of straight up lies about the ways that you let him out. Your blood's boiling and you don't respond in a loving way. You, you accuse back and it moves towards slander. And now, even as you're alone and this, this brother is nowhere around, you're stewing on it and you're bitter and you're thinking about vengeance and you're following the, the words of the world that would say, hey, listen, get back at that guy and then you'll feel better. And so when you see him at the, you know, the, the coffee station at work, you know, you give him the old cold chill, you're doing whatever, you're following the ways of the world. The wisdom of the world, the words of the world are in your heart. You go, wow, what do I do with that? Well, now you've seen how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this text. You're not alone to try to work this out. You talk to the only one who can help. You talk to the only one who has done this perfectly, and you start to pour out your heart in repentance and move towards faith. God, I'm I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry. I have seen this morning once more how you responded in the face of abuse. You had your father's word stored in your heart and you were kept from sin. You were enabled to love Jesus. Forgive me and help me. You alone can turn my heart right. Turn me towards mercy and patience and kindness. I throw everything I have upon you. Don't let your servant falter today. See how now all of a sudden it's moving towards faith in the goodness, hearing and believing that. And the Spirit comes with a new power because it's coming through Jesus and His His work on your behalf. Finally, we move from discover through nurture to apply. We continue, if you will, on our journey from head through heart to hand. And here is where we come to face Jesus' words like the ones we're going to see a bit later in Luke 11, verse 28, where he, he says, listen, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This gets at the end goal again. It's important how you get to the end goal. If you get to transformation or obedience by your own strength, then it ain't the sort of thing that brings glory to God. But if we've moved through, discover, nurture, towards apply, then we start to realize, yeah, this has to start coming out. I'm going to start looking more like my Savior, who did store up the word in his heart so that he wasn't led into sin against his father. We start looking like this. So we start to pray and we start to ask, help me, Jesus, with this. And you might uh, consider asking questions like these. And again, on your handout, what would this text look like walking out into the details of your life? Think again about what you are currently facing. If you adored, trusted, hoped in, obeyed, heeded, followed, how would it change your next 24 hours? Each day has enough trouble of its own. If this word from God can touch the next few hours, it will start to touch your life as a whole. Identify one thing you can do to apply this. Who else might need to hear this? Bear the good fruit once more. So if we're asking this of verse 11 in Psalm 119, I think we start to realize what we can do with Jesus' help. We need to hold some words in our heart today. <laughs> Jesus, I'm, I don't, I'm not ready to see this guy in his smug face when I show up at work and he thinks that he one-upped me and the boss is on his side and I feel abandoned and I want to lash out and what's going to hold me? 
Jesus, lead me to some words. Help me to hold something in my heart like you did. Maybe you land on Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Maybe you write it down on a note card and put it in your pocket. Or you, if you're tech savvy, you write it on your phone. And, and maybe throughout the day, you just kind of open up, think about it, chew on it. Wrestle for faith in it. Ask Jesus to help you. Be like him. Hear and believe the gospel and let him come and help you apply. I don't have much to say about solace, um, the last step along this path. The basic idea there is prayer. The reason why I didn't plan on saying much of anything about that here today is because actually where Jesus is going next, conveniently, in Luke's gospel, is actually to do a wonderful exposition of what prayer looks like. But I will at least just read this to you from uh, Life Together, because um, this is Bonhoeffer's book, again, sorry, Life Together, I quote it often. Um, But he's talking about how our times in scripture naturally will lead us, should lead us to times of prayer. And it's often good to begin with Scripture and then pray on those things rather than vice versa. Here's what he has to say, and it's why I would put this idea of solace or resting, praying, speaking to God uh, at the end of, of this path. Scripture meditation leads to prayer. The most promising method of prayer is to allow oneself to be guided by the word of, of the Scriptures, to pray on the basis of a word of the Scripture. In this way, we shall not become the victims of our own emptiness. Prayer means nothing else but the readiness and willingness to receive and appropriate the word. And what is more, to accept it in one's personal situation, particular tasks, decisions, sins, and temptations. According to a word of scripture, we pray for the clarification of our day, for preservation from sin, for growth and sanctification, for faithfulness and strength in our work. And we may be certain that our prayer will be heard because it is a response to God's word and promise. Because God's word has found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, all prayers that we pray conforming to this word are certainly heard and answered in him. So we take a scripture like verse 11 of Psalm 19 and we pray on it and we ask him for help and we pray it for others in our lives and we, and we think more deeply on it and we ask Jesus to walk out with us in it. We move from solitude, silence through scripture to the sanctum place with God and pouring our hearts out and, and as, to him as a place of solace. Let's, um, let's pray. God, we want more than anything to see you. And I know that techniques or methods or little worksheet or little path or whatever might be helpful. But what we really need at the end of the day is your spirit. Just like those disciples, you, you told them a hundred times over what you've come to do, and they didn't see it until you opened their minds, you opened their eyes. So God, I'm praying for our congregation that as we meet with you in the word alone, 
As we read the scriptures and try to sit with Mary at your feet, God, would you not only help us to develop maybe good questions to ask or good techniques, but would you help us by opening our eyes, showing us the good news, light it up for us at every turn, excite us, exhilarate us with your grace. Help us to see your glory in the face of Jesus every day. And let us be changed because of it. In your name I ask these things.